Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. This is episode 31. It's going to be the second half of our interview with Brother Guy Consolmagno. At the start of this interview, I asked him about his textbook that he wrote in the early 90s, and we move on from there to talk about teaching, the difficulties in teaching, trying to convey the wonder of science, and the human nature that makes it possible for us to at least succeed at that sometimes. So... We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as Bill and I did. Yeah. So, I did want to talk about, um, you actually, you wrote a textbook, and I assume you did most of the work for the textbook before you uh, went to join the Vatican Observatory, although I believe it came out in 95. Yeah. So, um, I just, you know, and, and obviously, you know, it's it's a textbook of, of the 90s, and things have sort of drifted since then. Unfortunately, I'm a child of the 20th century. We sort of allude to that in the text. Uh, the, the title of the uh, podcast is uh, is deliberately ambiguous. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, just try, trying to use that as a, I'm, I'm trying to use that as a stepping stone to talking about how we can convey, because, of course, I was trying to teach uh, planetary science in my own, you know, as a, in a class, a couple of at a couple of semesters back at Illinois State University, and confronted. I had a classroom full of people who were going to become high school teachers, and you know, of course, I am a mineralogist. I am, you know, bred, born, you know, cut my teeth on you know some pretty advanced into the outside world dry mathematics that I think is beautiful, but I have a hard time finding people to talk about its beauty with. What can we do? And of course, in the context of writing that textbook, what was it? What was your? Let, let's start with that. What was your market? I mean, what what was your intended audience for that textbook? Well, at the time that I started writing it, I was teaching a class, mm-hmm. and as you can imagine, the uh, textbooks available at the time just were completely inadequate. Mm-hmm. Now, the first class I taught was a bunch of undergraduates at MIT. I was a postdoc there at the time. And my co-author, Martha Schaefer, was the TA for the class, which is how the, the two of us got into writing it. Yeah. Uh, we're actually, she and I shared a, a colleague that uh, we both published with, and her husband and she and I were all members of the science fiction club, so we all knew each other very well. There you go. But in addition, we had this interest in planetary science. When I came back from the Peace Corps and I was teaching at Lafayette College, I had a regular course. And so <clears throat> I put together a textbook that I basically printed up on my Macintosh computer, it's a vintage 1986, you know, yeah. with a really, really tiny screen. Yeah. And, you know, I'd print it up and, and distribute it to the school, to the classes, and used it for a few years and discovered the bits that worked and the bits that didn't work. Yeah. And we reorganized it about four times because when you teach the stuff, you want to teach the material but when students take the stuff, they want to learn about planets. Exactly. Exactly. And the mistake that so many astronomy textbooks made at that time, I don't think it's quite as bad now, is the first chapter is orbits, celestial mechanics. Okay. You could not come up with a better topic to drive students away. Right. Because <laughs> it's, it's like listening to advanced jazz. You have to go through pop music and rock music and soft jazz before you have enough of a vocabulary to appreciate real jazz. Right, right. And you have to go through a lot of other science before you can then appreciate just how phenomenally wonderful celestial mechanics is. Yeah. But you don't start with that. No, no, you work your way up to that. 
but yeah. And so Martha and I came up with the gimmick that we would look like we were had every chapter about a planet, mm-hmm. and we'd start out the chapter by describing the planet best we knew in 1989, 1991. Yeah. But then we would take a particular topic that was special to that planet and teach people about cratering or teach people about magnetic fields or teach people about thermal evolution and sneak it in as a way that was hooked to the the topic of the planet. Right. The one fun thing that we discovered, Mars, uh, Martha was an expert on Mars and she did a lot of great geology about Mars. And my field at that time was the icy moons, the moons of Jupiter. Okay. And we realized we were horrible at writing whatever it was we were the most expert in. Uh-huh. Because we no longer had the perspective of a student. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's I very wrote difficult. the Mars chapter, which she then corrected, and she wrote the Icy Moons chapter, which then I corrected. Yes. Ah! Yes. That makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, I find it so much easier to write with someone else, someone who you can trust to say, no, this is awful, go fix it. Yeah. Yeah. What are they, 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 the advice they give to authors, you know, kill your darlings. It's Indeed. absolutely true. Yeah. Really, really hard. Yeah. If there is a piece of writing that you just think is, oh, this is so cool and I'm so clever for having written this, get rid of it. <laughs> Very frequently. <laughs> if you if you yeah. must show it to someone and let them tell you, no, this is not nearly as clever as you think it is. Exactly. Yeah. There is a, uh, a science fiction writer who I've gotten to like uh, a lot, a fellow named John Scalzi. And he's mm-hmm. been on the internet since uh, AOL days. Yeah. But he, uh, he certainly knows the internet and he knows his audience, the scientists and engineers. And to appreciate the comment, you have to know what the failure mode means to an engineer. Uh-huh. If something's going to fail, usually it fails in a particular way. Yeah. You know, if something's going to break, this is how it's going to break. This is what you look out yeah. for. Your rock so is going to fail at this fa- angle. The failure yeah. mode of clever, he says, is, well, he uses a stronger word, but the failure mode for clever is idiot or <laughs> stupid or <laughs> jerk. Yeah. Right? yeah. And the danger trying to be clever is that if it doesn't quite work, you wind up looking worse than ever. Really, really, yeah. And that's certainly true in publicizing or popularizing science. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 It is. And do you think that, uh, one, uh, one of the ways uh, that uh, I know you is by uh, being a communications person who's written about the science and religion initiative uh, at uh, the McGrath Institute at Notre Dame. And thank you, by the way, for being involved in that. That's made a, a huge contribution. Uh, but it's so much fun. Uh, oh well, great. Yeah, no, and I know that the participants, as well as the uh, the folks who are administering the program now, including Chris Baglow, uh, really have fun with it and and are excited about it. And I'm guess I'm wondering what you sense about uh, that excitement that the uh, uh, the 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 teachers you uh, uh, meet in that process. What what level of excitement they have because one would. One would think that, uh, you know, uh, in, in their own independent siloed classrooms, either science or religion, that uh, in a sense they're afraid of looking uh, ridiculous if they go prancing into a field that they've considered foreign to them. But 
they need to be encouraged that uh, there is this uh, complementarity, and uh, and it's not something that our culture seems to teach either students or teachers themselves. That is so true. And boy, being a high school teacher is tough. Yeah. Uh, I mm-hmm. did that for a while when I was in the Peace Corps, and just the physical toll of being on your feet and talking all day. Yeah. Um, it just it's astonishing. So my hats are off to all of those teachers. Mm-hmm. But to know that you're going to be standing in front of kids, some of whom are smarter than you, and some of you, them already know more than you know about uh-huh. any given corner of the topic. Yeah. That's right. brave. Yeah. yeah. The thing that works the most in any kind of public presentation, though, is to show that you're in love with the material that you love simply ideas, even if they're not your ideas. Um, Back in the days when I was looking for a date, you know, I joined this group called the Society for Creative Anachronism because they had a lot of pretty girls. (laughs) You can see how that turned out. (laughs) They would be enthusiastic about the details of medieval armor or the details of medieval cooking, and neither of which are particularly of interest to me, but I loved hearing them talk about it just because they were so enthusiastic. Yeah. And I just enjoyed being around expertise. Yeah. So every teacher should find whatever it is they're good at and be enthusiastic about that. Yeah. And show how you can learn even in things that you're not an expert in. Because really what you're teaching in high school is not a stack of material that you're going to regurgitate in a test. What you're teaching them is the technique of how do you learn, and yeah. you'll be learning for the rest of your life. Yeah. 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 But having fun, showing that you're having fun, and showing that you're not afraid to say, I don't know, let's find out. That's right. That's the key to everything. Right. That's great. Yeah. 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 And uh, students need to learn that, and uh, teachers have not really been encouraged to do that, especially as... Uh, uh, education in this country has been geared more toward test taking and metrics and yeah. all of that. There's a little bit less fun, I, I guess, in the typical. Well, it's it's part of human development. You saw, you see it in America. I saw it with the students in Africa. You know, they hit seventh, eighth, ninth grade. The the hormones start kicking in, yeah. and yeah. suddenly they're very, very afraid of what people think of them. Wow. Uh, yes. I had a, a parent of two teenage boys telling me that. Teenagers are incredibly self-conscious and totally not self-aware. Right. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that self-consciousness comes out in being afraid to look like a fool, being afraid to admit you don't know the answer. So a teacher who is not afraid that way, a teacher who can show that um, it's the beginning of wisdom to be able to say I don't know. You know, didn't Socrates say that? Right. And Who's Socrates? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> then you make them look it up on Wikipedia if nothing else. Yes. If nothing else, yeah. yeah that's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Of course, it was the famous line, what was Socrates' last words? I drank what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard that version of the joke before. Jeez, oh, oh. not original. I only steal the best. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, you give give, give it that distinct flavor. 
Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. I mean, I think in some ways earlier when we were talking about Galileo, we were uh, sort of tiptoeing around this issue a little bit too. But, I mean, you know, tell me how you think about it. I feel that there is a sense, a, a sort of sense among, you know, modern modern human beings that we're somehow better because we know all this stuff and that, you know, the, the point of life is to discard as much of what previous generations of human did as humans did as fast as we can. And I find that just, I mean, it's the, the whole, the old anecdote about, you know, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, living in Italy gives you, uh, forgive, gives me at least, an interesting perspective on all of that. There's a, a fellow at the observatory, uh, Paul Gabor, who gave a great talk that I've swiped and have used ever since. Mm-hmm. He points out that until about the time of Galileo, until the scientific revolution, the model was always people in the past were so much better. There was a golden age back when we were yes. all in Atlantis, or, yes. you know, and all in Eden or something like that. Yeah. Right? And if you walk around Rome, and it's 1400, and you're surrounded by the ruins of Roman civilization, and you see the Colosseum, and you go, boy, we could never build anything like that, then you're liable to believe that they were giants in the past and were just total idiots. And that's why they would believe all sorts of things that were written in books, because books were written in the past when they knew more. Right. Okay, the scientific revolution comes around, and it gets inverted. Yes. So that suddenly nobody knew anything in the past, and we're so much better now. You know, steam engines and electricity will solve the day. Um, it's only a matter of time, and who needs religion anymore, because that was from the past. Right. But the great thing of living in Rome is that you can see our technology is certainly you know, ten times better than it was a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. But modern art compared to the art that Michelangelo did 500 years ago? No, (laughs) art doesn't progress the same way. Architecture doesn't progress the same way. There are things that can have the past built into them. Mm -hmm. There are other things that not only can't, but shouldn't have the past built in. We talked about Socrates. Socrates was a great philosopher and faced moral dilemmas. Yeah, And we can learn from the way he made his decisions, but we can't let him make decisions for us. Because right. every one of us is facing our own unique set of values. And, you know, I can't turn off the law of electricity by turning off the switch that powers my light. Right. But there isn't a similar law of right and wrong that is as reliable as a light switch. I can't turn it on and off. I have to take the lessons and the examples of the past, but then apply them brand new to my own life. Um, if technology were so much uh, the, the indicator of the advancement of a civilization, well, you know, Nazi Germany had really, really good technology. It had, but, it had among the best of its day, yeah. You know, we're still living off of their rockets and their jet planes and... <laughs> Yeah. And we're still living with the results of the other things that they did, sadly. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. To say nothing of Imperial Japan. Um, or the slavery that, uh, you know, built the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's also true. It was, it was it's, yeah. It's called original sin, you know? And, uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's no escape from it. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I found myself, you know, there's a famous and um, I think fairly adamantly atheist uh, 
neuroscientist named Steven Pinker, and I remember listening to the audiobook of The Blank Slate. I got about, I don't know, a third of the way through it. Um, and I just remember thinking just how many, you know, he's, he's talking about things where we have instincts that served us, you know, in some sense in the past in a, you know, in a tribal hunter-gatherer or, or other, you know, primitive economic mode, and they don't work now. And I just, at some point, it, it struck me, that's one way of describing at least big swaths of what we call original sin, actually. You know, and if you don't have the theology of original sin, you're still left with the reality that it was invented to explain, and you had to come up with some explanation. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Was, it, was it Chesterton who said something about that's one of the most empirically verifiable aspects of Christianity? Indeed. There's a wonderful book, came out in Britain, I don't know if it's really available much in the U.S., by um, a writer... Um, Oh, I'm going to blank on the name. The book is called Unapologetic. Okay. And Francis Spufford is the writer. Okay. And he writes the point of view of an Anglican. Okay. And he talks about the emotional sense that Christianity makes to him in his life. And he has great friends with a lot of these atheist intellectuals, and he can talk to them as equals. Uh-huh. But he uses a wonderful phrase, an acronym, which, again, for the podcast, I'll clean up a little bit. Uh, he says... Original sin is a term that turns people off, but let's just talk about what we all recognize, the inherent human propensity to foul things up. Yes. Ah, yeah. <laughs> to foul and, and he uses up, a yes. different word than foul, but uh, you uh, get yeah, the idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mutatus mutandus, yes, yes. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. And any explanation of our experience as human beings has to start with the fact that it's there, we do things we know we shouldn't do them. We know we're going to regret them. We can't seemingly stop ourselves from doing it. Right. And it doesn't even have to be major things. Anyone who's tried to lose five pounds yeah. in the presence of an ice cream sundae knows exactly what I mean. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And and you scale that all the way up to, I mean, you know, what? why do 12-step programs exist except for the fact that people do things they know are wrong and can't stop themselves without yeah. a higher power? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. You're reminding me. I'll, I'll uh, ignore the use of the word scale there. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> oh, dear. You're making, brother, you're making me think in terms of the, the schooling uh, process again that uh, we, we tend to uh, see uh, the, the, the problem as a cultural problem, often where, uh, you know, uh, our. Uh, human egotistical uh, instincts, our natural instinct to think that we're God, uh, uh, it causes a rejection of history and other sources of learning, in fact, uh, because, uh, you know, they're, well, simply irrelevant to, uh, you know, my godlike uh, creature <laughs> that uh, is able to control everything now. Uh, it's it, it maybe it's part of that narcissism, but you're making me think that it's also uh, embedded in a certain natural human fear of what we don't know, and uh, that we don't want to admit what we don't know, and we don't want to know because it might impose responsibilities on us. Well, I think the other word you just used, which is key there, is control. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've known people, sadly I dated one, somebody who 
refuses to be happy because they can't always make themselves happy. But you can always make yourself miserable. Uh, <laughs> and then you're in control. So the, the, the fear of losing control is more important than the fear of not being happy. Oh, yeah. Dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. There was a wonderful play that nobody knows that T.S. Eliot wrote in the um, moment of uh, dedicating a cathedral. It's called The Rock. Okay. And how the rock is, you know, the rock is the church. And right. in it are a series of uh, choruses. And in one of them, he wrote this in 1935, so it's, you know, fascism is on the rise, and Hitler is on the rise, and communism is on the rise. Yeah. And he has a line in there talking about people looking for systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. Yes. Ah. Yes. And that's the trap. You think, if only everybody followed my political party, then. If only everybody followed my religion, then. If only everybody followed my lack of religion, then. Right. Um, and fault isn't in our stars, or in our science, or in our religion. It's in us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well said. That's, that, yep. that's worth repeating <laughs> in various terms. Yes. Yeah. If, if only there were a great playwright who would use that line someplace. (laughs) (laughs) If only. Uh, uh, Yeah, you have to read him in the original Klingon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Very good. That's that's a symptom of my misspent youth. I I was born in 1979 and I spend an awful lot of time watching VHS tapes of the the Star Trek uh, movies when I was when I was young. As it happens, one of the joys of being a Jesuit at the Vatican Observatory who loves science fiction is I go to these conventions and I've met uh, Lawrence Scherner, who's considered one of the experts in the Klingon language. Oh my goodness, they've actually gone in and invented a grammar and a vocabulary. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's great fun. Constructed languages are a major uh, pastime among fantasy authors and, and other people who simply want, you know... Find find yep. joy in that. It's fascinating. Well, and you can see someone like Tolkien who did that. Right. Yeah. Language itself does create a view of the universe, and yeah. everybody everybody walking the streets has their own personal language, their own personal cosmology, and yeah. we all think we're speaking a similar language until you come to a foreign country like Italy, and you have to suddenly deal with a different language. I'll give you a biblical example. Mm-hmm. of how language changes your perspective of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know the story, if we've read the Bible, of Abraham and Sarah and these three strangers show up. Oh, turn out yeah. to the angels, of course, and they're going to tell him he's going to have a son. But uh, Abraham says to Sarah, you know, quick, make something, feed these people, they're hungry. Yes. And in the English, it says that she makes a, a paste of water and flour, and you know, go, oh yeah. my God, why would you feed that to anybody? Right. right? Right. In the Italian, it says she makes a focaccio. Sounds of course, flour and water, the same yes. thing, and a little bit of oil, and yeah. it's wonderful. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Quick, make some rolls or some loaves or some focaccia. Yeah. Well, that's a clear focaccia, choice right yeah. there. Well, that's a clear Just choice. Just in the same sense that um, that uh, language can help make us more uh, or, or make make uh, closer ties between um, our, our human selves and uh, understanding of, uh, of the world. Is it possible that um, Catholic culture or some kind of faith-based or values-based culture like that taught in, in faith-based schools 
is is also kind of um, a tool that you've found very useful in making science and religion and uh, uh, matters of the mind and matters of the heart more amenable to each other? It really is that sense of language. Somebody once said that you have to learn more new words in freshman biology than you do in freshman French. Mm. And <laughs> an awful lot of what we teach in science is teaching the language so that we can all talk the same, all the same stuff and know what we're talking about. Yes. The thing that struck me when I became a Jesuit and they made me learn philosophy and theology was not that you know I learned things about God and go, oh my God, I never knew that. But rather, I learned a language that can be used to talk about God, to mm. talk about big ideas, to talk about philosophy. Yeah. And yeah. having the language gives you the tools or handles on the ideas so you can assemble them and put them in a different order and see what's going on. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the great things of education. That's one of the great things of being an educator is learning that language and imparting that language. And as you know, with any language, you've got to live in the culture and speak the language with the native speakers or else you'll never be fluent in it. Right. That's why you can't teach yourself science. That's why you can't teach yourself religion. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Although some of us yeah. find themselves in a position where they are almost obliged to try for a while. Yeah, but, you, you know, if you've learned the language, you really want to go to the country where they speak it. Yes. You really yeah. That's emphatically true. I think about the Ethiopian and the Acts of the Apostles a lot. He's almost sort of a mascot for me in my own spiritual journey that I felt so isolated when I was a teenager. And I was, you know, my first religious friend was Dante, really. Um, yes. that's, that's just my own personal journey. And, and not, and, and, and not, you know, you to go back to talking about original sin for a moment, you know, my own self-destructive tendency to isolate and stay there and not, you know, not allow myself that, you know, speaking with my brothers in the faith, just not making the steps necessary to go out and find those people who speak that language and, and luxuriate in that. Yep. Yeah, that's... Well, I'm looking at the clock here. I've it is indeed, yes, soon, uh, 56 uh, minutes past the hour. Language, and I've got both waiting for me. Oh, yes, good. yes. Well, we are beyond <laughs> grateful for your time, uh, Brother Consolmagno, and it has been a great privilege to talk to you. Well, it's fun talking to you guys. It, it was fun meeting you, and uh, I'm really delighted that I was able to chip in and, and help out a little bit. Yes. And as I say, you know, your thousands of listeners, I'd love to have them introduce them sometimes. Um, if I can give a little advertising. Yes. There are two things, places on the Internet, that I hope you'll have links to or tell people about. Mm -hmm. One you just find by Googling the Catholic astronomer. Okay. Yeah. And that's where we have this conversation. There are about half a dozen of us who write regularly on topics of astronomy and faith or just astronomy. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of fun, and we'd love to have more people join up and see what we're doing. We've got about uh, 8,000 people mm -hmm. who are regular subscribers at this point, and I'd love it to be 80,000. Not 8 yes. million. That'd be too much. That'd be too many. <laughs> right. That'd be too many. Yeah. And for people who are teachers and want resources on faith and science, we also have a blog site or that's <clears throat> basically there are links to it off the Catholic Astronomer. Just go to the Vatican Observatory Foundation website. Okay. And this is a site where we have nearly 500 articles, videos, things you can download that are appropriate for high schools or university or at any level. 
lots of different resources that we have found online that we think are good places that talk about one aspect or another of the faith science issues. Mm -hmm. Boy, those All are right. excellent resources. Yeah. So yeah. one of them is VO Foundation slash blog, that gets you to the Catholic Astronomer. Or okay. VO Foundation, all one word, dot org. Mm -hmm. Did I say the dot org the last time? Should have. No, VOFoundation.org slash blog, VOFoundation.org slash faith hyphen and hyphen science. Ah, okay. okay. Well, we will make sure to have those links up. We'll actually probably put them permanently in the sidebar for our on our website and uh, publicize those. And, uh, right. in fact, there's someone who's just contacted me, well, I've contacted them, uh, the Society of Catholic Scientists, um, has a, has mm -hmm. a forum and has put, uh, put us in touch with someone, um, who's actually just a fifth grade teacher in Florida. I will be letting her know exactly what, uh, what you yeah. just said. Fantastic. That's great. Thank you for helping us to be part of the expansion of the network of people who are discussing these issues. Well, and thanks for asking the great questions and giving me a space to tell my favorite stories. <laughs> great. <laughs> well, Enjoy anytime it. you want to come tell some more Carl Sagan stories, uh, we, we will have an open ear. All right. Talk All right. to you guys later. Thank, Thank you, brother. brother Guy.